Welcome to the Trinity Reformed Church Podcast. Sermon by Matt Carpenter on January 23rd, Lord's Day Service. text this morning is the book of Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 15. We'll begin reading in verse 1. And the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, Speak to the children of Israel, and say to them, When any man has a discharge from his body, his discharge is unclean. This shall be his uncleanness in regards to his discharge, whether the body runs with the discharge or his body is stopped by his discharge, it is his uncleanness. Every bed is unclean on which he who has the discharge lies, and everything on which he sits shall be unclean. And whoever touches his bed shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. He who sits on anything on which he has on which he who has the discharge shall be unclean until evening. Excuse me shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And he who touches the body of him who has the discharge shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. And if he who has the discharge spits on him who is clean, then he shall wash his clothes and bathe in water and be unclean until evening. Any saddle on which he who has the discharge rides shall be unclean. Whoever touches anything that was under him shall be unclean until the evening. Now skip to verse 13. When he who has the discharge is cleansed of his discharge, then he shall count for himself seven days for his cleansing, wash his clothes, and bathe his body in running water. Then he shall be clean. On the eighth day he shall take for himself two turtle doves, or two young pigeons, and come before the Lord to the door of the tabernacle of meeting, and give them to the priest. Then the priest shall offer them as... One as, well, one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. So the priest shall make atonement for him before the Lord because of his discharge. Now verse 25. If a woman has a discharge of blood for many days, other than at the time of her customary impurity, or if it runs beyond her usual time of impurity, all the days of her unclean discharge shall be as the days of her customary impurity. She shall be unclean. Every bed on which she lies all the days of her discharge shall be to her as the bed of her impurity. And whatever she sits on shall be unclean as the uncleanness of her impurity. Verse 30, excuse me. Verse 28. But if she is cleansed of her discharge, then she shall count for herself seven days, and she shall be clean. And on the eighth day she shall take for herself two turtle doves or two young pigeons and bring them to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. Then the priest shall offer the one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering. And the priest shall make atonement for her before the Lord for the discharge of her uncleanness. Thus you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, lest they die in their uncleanness when they defile my tabernacle that is among them. Let us pray. Our Father and God, you have given us every word of Holy Scripture. It is inspired and useful for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. May we hear and receive your word as such. May the words of my mouth and meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. 
Amen. We come this morning to the last section on uncleanness in Leviticus. These laws were not merely to keep people physically clean, but they were given, we read, to preserve the holiness of the tabernacle, the place where God met with man. In the Old Covenant, unclean things, when something that is unclean comes into a place or touches something that is holy, it pollutes it. This is not based on just microscopic evidence that they have. This is what God has ordained. Clean, excuse me, what is unclean pollutes what is holy. We saw this especially in the case of those like uh, the example of Nadab and Abihu when they went into the holy place and they, it was not time for them to go there. They brought what was not prepared for holiness in God's presence and consequently they died. But remember the focus of Leviticus is not about keeping people out. We usually think of these laws as this is how you keep everybody out. You can't go here. You can't do this. You can't come here. Stay away from this animal. You can have... That's what we think of these laws as doing that. But we should look at Leviticus instead as this is God's plan for how the people come back in. He's telling them this is how you can come back to me. They've been separated in the garden. They were removed from the garden, but now this is how you return. It's about healing those who are unclean, making them fit for His presence. Now Leviticus 15 is often skipped because of its delicate content. You'll notice I did not read every verse of Leviticus 15. It would be edifying if you did so. I will leave that to you to decide how much of that you read. But we should not be ashamed to declare what was read to both children and adults in ancient times. If a small child can handle the reading of, of Leviticus 5,000 years ago, a small, a small child can handle it today. The Old and New Testament writers were not hesitant to speak of sexual matters in public. I'm not saying that we should participate in body conversation, which is something the Apostle Paul explicitly forbids in Ephesians 5 verse 4. But if we fail to read and proclaim Scripture merely because it's uncomfortable, we neglect part of God's gift to us, and we resign that area to our own human reason. We think, I don't really like the way God describes that, so I can do a better job. That's dangerous territory. Again, as we've seen already, this chapter has to do with uncleanness. Now, there are two types of uncleanness under consideration in Leviticus 15. The first is what we would call normal uncleanness. That which results from physical intimacy between a man and woman or from a woman's monthly cycle. 
Both of them are mentioned. We did not read those verses, but, but you, you can find them uh, starting in let's see, verse, well, from verse 13 down to verse 25. The answer when this had happened was afterwards you're unclean until the evening. You wash in water and then you're now clean and you can go out in public again. Simple to the point. No offering was necessary. There's nothing that you had to do, nothing you had to give or bring to the priest in this case. So that's one type, but the, the type that receives, the type of uncleanness that receives much more attention is what I'll call abnormal uncleanness. Here we especially see the consequences of sexual sin. Those discharges referred to in the early part of chapter 15 are the result of what we today would call STDs. That's not a novel idea. This is, there's universal agreement among commentators about this. Now, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but my guess is no one thought, unless you've studied this before, that God's Word actually addresses something like that. He only talks about awesome stuff. He doesn't talk about the nitty-gritty of everyday life, right? Oh, He does. People have always been people, and sin has always been sin, and the consequences of sin have been the same since the fall. We live with this. And God's people, though they are God's people, did not escape from these consequences. Sexual sin came when sin itself entered the world. Now sometimes the things mentioned here are not the results of sexual sin. Sometimes it's just the evil that is part of the evil of living in a fallen world. Take, for example, in the New Testament, the woman with an issue of blood. We, we remember the story, Jesus was on his way to heal. He was on his way to heal a man's son, or excuse me, daughter. And instead, this woman stopped him, touched the hem of his garment, and she was healed. So the, her type of affliction is specifically mentioned here in this passage in Leviticus chapter 15, that of ongoing feminine bleeding. So as a, as a consequence, though, this woman was continually unclean. She could not go into fellowship with God's people. She was always held back because of her uncleanness. Now, it doesn't say anything about her being in sin, about sin causing that. It could have, but not necessarily. Those, those things happen, and we, we all see this. We all experience, whether ourselves individually or whether we see it in others, we experience consequences of the fall, and the consequences of the fall affect every part of our being. For those affected, anything that you touch, if you touch something 
that an unclean person had been around, that the unclean person had touched, now you yourself are unclean. Now, once the physical malady had stopped in this abnormal uncleanness, the, the answer was, for both men and women, you would wash yourself in water, wash your clothes, and then you would bring two doves to the priest, one for a purification offering, the other for a whole burnt offering. So after you brought that, again, you, you would go your number of days, then you would bring your offering to the priest. You're now ceremonially clean. Now, this offering, these two birds, it is the smallest type of offering that we find in Scripture. Often the offerings are lambs or goats or cows, but not here. It is very small, and, and it's, it's a kindness from God because this shows all people, whether wealthy down to the poorest, you could get two birds. You could catch two birds. And these two birds were what you would bring. The consequences of sexual brokenness, whether through sin or from living a, in a disordered world, leave no one. No matter how much you have or how little you have, it leaves no one untouched. But by the same token, there's hope because there is an offering given even for this. Again, these are not things we talk about. But Yahweh, the Almighty said, I've got a, I've got a plan for that. I've got a way to help with that. This passage would have stood as a warning, especially to the younger generation, to the young men and women of Israel. The temptation to sexual sin was strong then, even without the help of the Internet. But though they did not have the Internet, they did have live people. They had wicked temples. They did not have what we have, but, but sometimes we can excuse, we, we, we can say, well, it, it was easier back then because they didn't have all, all of the, the horrid temptations of, you know, these phones and stuff that we have. They did have temptations. Satan didn't say, man, I really wish I could tempt the ancients. I, 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 eventually I'll be able to tempt the moderns really well, but I just can't. No, that was not a problem. They faced the same type of temptation. And that's why you will see later on in this book specific sexual prohibitions. In, in giving Leviticus, God is transforming His people. He's transforming them in their standards of virtue as well as teaching them to protect what is holy. And especially in both cases, the, the growing in virtue and protecting what is holy, they're actually going to work together because God is laying the foundation here to teach His people how to be clean vessels. He's teaching them this is what it looks like to be holy. 
Now for us, we would say, we don't have a tabernacle anymore. We don't have a, a, a temple, a physical place with, with items that are set apart that people can't touch. But again, it's not just objects he's concerned about. One of the applications that we see here from this passage that's addressed in the New Testament, and the New Testament actually does refer back to the, the statements of Leviticus 15, or it refers back to them, not directly, but to the types of things that Leviticus 15 talks about. The first application I want us to see from this chapter is you belong to God. Verse 31, he tells us, you shall separate the children of Israel from their uncleanness, that they die not in their uncleanness, whether they defile my tabernacle, when they defile my tabernacle, that is among them. Protecting the holy things was important. All the various items in the tabernacle, that was important. But it's not just for the furniture's sake. He, the, the father is not like the older grandmother who buys a new couch and keeps it wrapped in the plastic and says, you know, you got to be careful. I'm not going to let you actually sit on the actual couch because you may get it dirty. I don't know if y'all know what I'm talking about here, but I've actually had this experience multiple times with people of older generations. There are people who do that. That's not the point of protecting the tabernacle items. It's, it's going to point to something even better, and that is God is preparing His people to be His coming temple. His people will be the tabernacle furniture, the temple furniture. And Paul says this. He talks about this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 18 through 20. He says, flee sexual immorality. Every sin that a man does is outside the body. But he who commits sexual immorality sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God? And you are not your own, for you were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Paul is telling the church at Corinth, uh, and we heard last week, Corinth was a place that was absolutely in bondage to debauchery and perversion. There were certain places you would not want your, your child to go out alone in, and Corinth was one of them. And by young child, I mean anyone who's, say, below about 18. And if it's a girl, you need to make sure your daughter's married before she goes out in public there alone. So Paul is telling them, you are God's temple. He keeps the same imagery, the imagery of protecting the vessels but Paul applies this, he, he, he applies the temple picture to sexual sin. He says that fornication is not just an outward sin. It's not just something you do against someone else. It is a sin against your own body. 
But on top of that, it's not just that you're doing something that you shouldn't do to yourself because you don't actually belong to you. You belong to God. You are bought. You are paid for. You belong to Him. All of these things together are brought so that we can see when we sin in this way, we are still, just like they were in Leviticus, when we sin today sexually, we are sinning against God's temple. So remember, you belong to God. Another application that we can see is that chastity is a gift from God. Now, when I say chastity, a lot of people automatically jump to, oh, that means being single and celibate. But it doesn't have to mean that. Chastity is just an old word for abstaining from sexual sin. The call in Leviticus 15, the call in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, is not just about, I can't do this. What all can I not do? No, it's about pursuing a higher beauty. And that higher beauty is the good or God Himself. You belong to God. And because you belong to God, you are called to glorify, to bring glory to God. So your pursuit is not on your own behalf anymore. You are pursuing someone greater. Now I understand, when you are in the middle of temptation, in a very strong moment, this knowledge that, that, you're, that we're called to pursue the higher beauty of God doesn't make the temptation easy. It doesn't just deflate all the pressure that you have. But it is, it is something that we should meditate on and build in our minds and in our hearts so that in those times we will remember, I can't do what I want to do, and I'm called to something greater. And most of the time, that something greater is to display the work of Christ in marriage, in chaste marriage. Because Paul goes on. He doesn't just stop in chapter 6 and say, stay away from sexual immorality. Don't do that. Because if you read, if you don't stop at the it's kind of unnecessary chapter break there. If you just keep on reading from chapter 6 into what is chapter 7, you'll read in 1 Corinthians 7 verses 1 through 3, that Paul will call for the people to marry. 
So if we, if we go from the last of chapter 6, glorify God in your body and spirit which are God's. Now concerning the things which you wrote to me, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. Nevertheless, because of sexual immorality, let each man have his own wife and let each woman have her own husband. Let the husband render unto his wife the affection due her and likewise also the wife to the husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, as, but the husband does. And likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another except with consent for a time that you may give yourselves to fasting and prayer and come together again so that Satan does not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So your call to glorify God in your body and spirit is directly connected also to the call to marriage. This is part of how you glorify God in your body and your spirit. And this is the case for the large majority of people. Leviticus and the prohibitions in all of Scripture does not cast a negative light on marital intimacy. It is not a degrading act. And that is one of the great lies of every enemy of God in history, is that he wants you to be miserable. God hates you and has a terrible plan for your life. That's the lie. And that lie is for you to just suffer because you can't do anything that's delightful. No, this is a gift. So it, it, this act is not a degrading one. It is a gift, but it is one that must be properly protected and channeled. So that's why Paul says, in order to flee from sexual immorality, marry. Now, of course there's more to marriage than just abstaining from sin. Yes. But again, the light that Paul is giving to this is as a blessing. This is God's gift. And even what we see in Leviticus. Though the couple afterwards is considered unclean, after they've been in marital intimacy, again, no offering is needed to restore them so that they can come back. And you can even argue that the command that, the, that they are unclean until the evening is a blessing. Think with me on this. From the moment of their time together, they are not allowed to go in public again until after they've washed and it is the evening. So this is free and clear. You've got to stay together in your house until the night. Most would not consider that a burden. Even in this, God is showing grace. He's showing kindness to his people. So we see that we belong to God, that chastity is a gift from God, but also we see here the way the New Testament treats this, that Jesus restores those who are broken. Jesus restores the broken. What about those who come, though, and they've got baggage? 
They, they have sin. There are people in this room, I have no doubt, who bring the baggage of past sin. What do you do with that? There are some who are affected by sin. You, maybe you yourselves have not sinned, but you are affected by it. What do you do? You face, you, you didn't commit the sin, but you are dealing with the consequences of the sin. What, what, what's left to you? Let's look back at the example of the woman who was caught in adultery. John chapter 8, verses 1 through 11. I'm not going to read the story. I know you're familiar with it. The woman who's brought in adultery to Jesus was clearly guilty. They said she was caught in the act. But we know that Jesus did not stone her. Now, in order for some who, who have a, a, a good desire to protect the righteousness and the justice of God, they say, well, it's because they didn't bring the man as well. Kind of with if the implication is, if he had brought the man, then Jesus would have said, all right, let's go. Take rocks and have at it. That's not the point of the story. Jesus does not excuse her sin. He does not tell her, I am sorry, I know that you're just a victim of this. And you know what? She may have been. It could very well have been a plot, a setup, all the time, simply to trap Jesus. It could have been. Jesus still didn't excuse the sin. He didn't say, you have no sin. You didn't sin. No. But she knew she was guilty. Jesus' response, when she's brought there, she's on the ground, and they're wanting permission from Jesus. They want Jesus to join in and condemn her. He dispersed the accusers. And his words to her are, go and sin no more. He doesn't excuse the sin. Sin is sin, and it must be dealt with. We must repent of it, but he doesn't leave it there. Jesus removed the accusers, the accusers who didn't belong there to begin with. And Jesus, his words are, don't sin anymore. Go, be on your way. For someone who was ready to be stoned, to hear the words of this rabbi who said, where are your accusers? And she says, they're gone. He said, neither do I accuse you. Go and sin no more. Or what about the woman with the issue of blood? The fact that she touched Jesus should have made Jesus unclean. She took a chance. She went out in public and she touched him. He should have been the one who is now unclean. 
But this is how Jesus handles our sin. Instead of him becoming unclean, she was healed and made clean. This is what Jesus does to our sin, to our problems, to our impurity, to our uncleanness. When we come to him, he takes it on himself. And he gives us in exchange his goodness, his perfection, his healing. So if you have been burdened by this, if you have sinned in this way, Jesus is here. If you have been harmed and you face the consequences of this, Jesus is here. Do you have sin in your past that you fear would bring you into accusation? Have you ever said to yourself, if, if everybody knew what I'd done, they'd never look at me the same again. Jesus says, go and sin no more. Come to the one who has already removed the accuser. He has dealt with the accuser. The only one, Romans, Paul says in Romans 8, who can accuse you is Christ himself who died for you. So just like the woman, take hold of his garment in prayer. He will take your sin. He will take your impurity. He will take your pain that no one else can heal. And he will transform you. So bring everything to him. And watch him cleanse you and raise you up and restore you for service in his eternal kingdom. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the gift of your grace. Thank you for Jesus, our Savior, who has taken our impurity and given us his cleansing and healing. May we grow in your wisdom and always live in the joy of the gospel. In Christ we pray. Amen. Thank you.